And Lexa today is going, and I titled it, Should Games Persist As Long As They Do? Is that a fair title, Lex? It's not quite where I was going, but oh I like my the, goodness, I like, I'm fired. I really, no, I really First podcast. Like, <laughs> no, I really like the concept. We'll, we'll, we'll actually explore that a little bit because um, I think it's worth talking about. All right. Well, Lex, without further ado, my friend, take it away. So I kind of wanted to provide a little context around this segment so that people that are listening know kind of what they're going to get. Um, so I first started playing games in elementary school back at the arcade era. And then over 20 years later, I had the pleasure of taking my son and introducing him to his first games. And now I'm getting the chance to my oldest grandchild is just at that age where I can start introducing them to his. I, I have grandchildren, but they're, they're very young. And it just reminded me of sort of the, the history of this industry and the trends in it. And I would say that there's kind of some things have changed a lot. So like an example, the code of the original games I played would fit in the upper left-hand corner of the splash screen of most of the games you have. And you could probably get most of my original games, put them all together and they might fit on one screen. Very tiny. But some other things sort of evolve. I, I played a lot of Counter-Strike and games of that type. My son is big into Call of Duty. And then other things are kind of timeless. One of the very first games that I played was produced in 1983 and published by Electronic Arts. And so it's an industry that's gone through change, has evolved, and is still changing. And I wanted to have a section that focused very heavily on the developing trends in the industry, sort of the long view things, the benefit of being the, the old guy. So I'll ask you both questions. And, and it's one I, I posed earlier, but I, I wonder if you had any time to think about it. And I'm scared. Just, there's no perfect answer, but... What would you say was the most important technical trend in games in the last 20 years to you? And I'll let y'all throw that out. Oh, I'll go first. Mm-hmm. I would say the most important tech technical, like we're talking from a, from a development, like engine side of things or from Just like the, a, the, the, te- the technologies that implement games, the way that they're produced, created the tools, all those things. Yeah. I would definitely say probably the the centralization of game engines to some degree. So like, for instance, back in the day, you know, it, it went, you built the game, you built the engine, right? That's how it was done. It wasn't, you know, you take an engine and build a game. And now we have engines like Unity, Frostbite, Snowdrop, uh, Unreal. <laughs> I can't believe I'm forgetting that one you know, all these engines that are out there and it's what essentially it's done for game developers is it's created a centralized language repository where, you know, similar to game coding or language coding where, you know, I'm a Ruby on Rails developer, I'm a JavaScript developer, I'm this, I'm that, right? And it makes it very easy for developers and engineers to then innovate further because they don't have to worry about um, you know, like Unreal Engine, like they don't have to worry about the nuts and bolts of the engine itself. They can actually just turn on the engine and run with it in terms of developing games, in terms of developing stuff. So I'd say okay. that's the biggest innovation for sure. I'd say that's an excellent answer. Yeah. What about you, Des? Um, I don't... My first instinct is to answer with uh, graphics cards. Um, and 
uh, graphics cards have come a long way. And I remember back in the 90s where it was like just this tantalizing dream of 3D graphics that just like you had to squeeze every ounce of performance you could just to play some of the games you wanted to play. And they're really, really basic by today's standards. But the the power of graphics cards has allowed people to build games with immersive games in ways that just have always pushed the envelope. And I think that's been a really huge driving force from, I think, inside the gaming industry of like people who are gamers on uh, what games they want to play and, and keeping the, the momentum going. I, would, I don't know if it's the most important technology advancement that makes a difference, but I think it's one of the big ones. Well, I, I would actually say that those are both excellent answers with, with a lot of perspectives to them. Exactly. Um, I will throw in a third one, one that I think is less talked about and is, is not something that I think people spend a lot of time dealing with directly, but impacts everything about what's going on in this industry today. And that is the persistence of online account information. The fact that now you have an identified ID oh, interesting. that the game companies can use to connect to you. And, and here's what's happened with this. It's created a golden age. We live in a golden age of gaming. So many titles, so many products. It's now possible for companies to basically go to various app stores and online services. You have a license to the game. You can play the game. It's, it's opened up the world. And I think the tool you talked about, Unity and things like that, added to that. But in the prior world, it wasn't easy to do that kind of thing. Now it's accessible. It's also created a dark age of incredibly monetized business, um, massive amounts of money that can be cycled through for good and bad, leading to behaviors that are frankly very dangerous going on in the business. And I wouldn't say it's necessarily the most, but it is one of the things that I would say is hiding in the back that people don't think about. And it's really based on a changing industry around persistence and its uses by game companies, its uses by players. If you, so we'll start with sort of the beginning of, of the thing and we'll, ex, we'll ignore some of the real early stuff in the seventies and just begin with, you know, it, we, first we had the arcade era, right? Uh, this was this was the time of my early childhood, the Space Invaders and Centipede and Pac-Man, uh, an era in which there was almost no persistence in games. Now, even with almost no persistence, the game companies tried really hard to figure out how to get your money. Those arcades were monetizing beasts. Throw it in there, burn those quarters. And they actually did have one form of persistence. I don't know if either of you remember this, but they would have at the top of the screen, they'd have a high score. Yep. Probably have you seen this, right? Yeah. And and if you did well enough, you would get your high score in. And of course, the joke is that's until somebody you know pulled the plug and it reset. But that pursuit of the high score was one of the very first. We want to drive behaviors. We want to get people to spend money that you saw. But interestingly enough, it was also an era in which the lack of persistence was monetized. Did you ever play a game called Gauntlet? Uh, no. Yeah, this is this this is a mid '80s kind of game, and it was one where there were, you could have four characters playing in a game, and this thing just eight quarters. As the game went on, your health would decrease, and once you got in monsters hit you, your health would decrease. And every so often, you run out of life, and you have to put another quarter in to continue. And the gimmick here was you couldn't save. 
So if you'd made it through all those levels and you and your buddies were playing and you were running out of quarters, somebody better give you a quarter. So they were basically trying to keep you playing, rewarding with that extra little level, knowing uh-huh. that if, if the game ended, you were done. Oh, this is this. Those games still exist today and I hate them. Yep. But that <laughs> so so there's even from the very beginning, it's really relevant to the fact that monetization has always been part of the business. They just had to come up with ways to do it. And then almost immediately, the companies decided, well, you know, people don't want to spend all their money in arcades, right? They let's give them a home console. So while the arcade companies were doing that, other companies were coming up with some of the early consoles, the, the Atari 2600 and the Intellivision. And I will give you my little slight story. I have played E.T., the famous game that supposedly ruined the industry. <laughs> the one they got buried not, somewhere? Yes, yes. It does not deserve the terrible reputation it has. It is. It was on a processing system that had almost no power. And if you ever used that, the joystick was basically a button and a joystick. Yep. Crappy interface, limited processor, no memory, too complicated for what he was trying to do. Didn't have a lot of rooms, simple AI, the, the things would chase you very poorly. The collision detection had all kinds of problems because he was working with the limits of what he has. So it's a very simple game. And for, for all the complaints about it, we played it for hours. We never could quite figure it out, mind you, but we played it for hours. And of course, it's it's sort of famous as, oh, it ruined the industry. No, it didn't. It was, it was just a bad game. Well, or somebody tried to design a good game for a system that could do very little. My father, on the other hand, he, he, he was the kind of guy that he got the video disc player, then he got us the beta, then he finally got us the VHS when the other technologies failed. And we ended up with an Intellivision, a, a much better system than an Atari 2600. But the thing about these systems is I, there was no persistence. It was pretty much you played. And it was interesting because essentially the game developers only had one way to make money with these things. They had to produce cartridges. They had to get you to buy it. There was absolutely no way for them to use any kind of system to get you to make money for them. And that actually turned out to be a fairly big problem. Now, I don't know if, did any of you ever have an NES? So I, I get, hopefully I'm getting more into an earlier, maybe some people have seen, <laughs> nope. right? That's the, that's the old days. Okay. So I still have, we still have yeah, one. Yeah. So the thing about the NES that was really fascinating to me was the game Zelda actually did have saves, right? Now I, my dad also got me an IBM PC Jr. And I remember how amazingly fun it was to have the very first kind of persistence. You put the little crappy floppy disk in and you would be able to save the game. And this was so exciting because you could come back to it. And that was totally radical new idea. Right? So this led to an era, I would say, what I call this long period in which game companies really struggled with monetization. The problem is, is that if you're a game company and you produce the game, you either have, it either succeeds, you'd have to make it cheaply and produce junk, which there was plenty of that. You had to reskin a prior game and try to sell more of it. There was plenty of that. Or you had to put the money in and hope you get enough sales, or you have to make enough different product that something makes profit, or you go out of business. A very long era in which, you know, for almost 10 years, where it was very difficult for game companies to make any money other than just selling you the commodity and hoping they make enough money on it. I, I don't know if you guys have ever followed just how many of those companies went out of business, just how rough a business that was, and how, hard, how just one failure could close the shop. I mean, our, Atari is famous for that. Just a one bad year and they're out of business. Didn't take yep. much, right? Yeah, and there's several, there's a couple companies that went out of business that way. 
And it's just, it was an era in which the game developers and the game companies struggled to figure out how to get you to spend the money. Now, the arcades were still a thing, and they still are. I, I haven't been in arcade in years. I don't know if they're still going, but it was a big thing for a long time. And so we ended up in a world in which the game companies had a problem. They, they, they didn't want to get that sweet subscription money, the services income that everybody today wants to get. Now, I would say my own experience around the early 90s, you start seeing what I'll call the pre-internet era, where the BBSs, where you could, I don't, do you ever, you ever do a BBS? I'd really get, maybe getting into the modern era a little bit here. A, a BBS? Yes, like, a bulletin board system, a pre-internet dial-in no. with a crappy little modem. So a 300-baud <laughs> modem. So, so Lex, there, I was which, born yesterday, okay. Yes, 300-bit. <laughs> so I, I'm I a literal child. I could not describe to you how slow these early modems were. Like they could barely move any text, but you would dial in on your phone and you hear the little fame. If you've ever seen old movies, the famous dial in sequence, the handshake that sounds like, you know, horrible chirping. And then you would log into some little server somebody ran. And there I played a game called Trade Wars, the first server side persistence game I'd ever played, where there was a game that you could log into every day and you could play. It wasn't much. It was also still hard to make money. The BBSs had various ways to make money. They could charge you for time. They could charge you for access. But they were starting to use persistence, the fact that the server could restore, could stay up and maintain the game state as a way to try to at least get you to do things. And, of course, that led into sort of the early Internet era, the, before everybody saw it, when you'd go to the computers at the computer lab and you would play these early muds and mushes, still free, just sort of people having a good time. But a few years later, in the early 2000s, hopefully you've heard of EverQuest. You know, yes, I, I have. Yeah, I've heard of yes. EverQuest too. <laughs> so, so EverQuest, it's a funny phenomenon you're talking about, and I, I'd love to have a topic on this. Oftentimes, the first to the place isn't necessarily the winner. In fact, arguably Meridian 59 is the first game of that type to the market, and then Ultima Online and EverQuest sort of share sort of almost the same time. But the key here. And this is the beginning of an era in which you could actually get a subscription. You paid a fee. And for the first time, a company could regularly sell a product over and over and over again. And then when they needed a burst of money, they could sell an expansion. And so it's a situation in which a company is literally sitting for the first time, right? If you'd had a popular game before, once you sold copies of it, you were done. All you could do was make Mortal Kombat 2, then Mortal Kombat 3 or whatever. You just had to sell more of the same thing. But now you could take the same basic product. And if you see it in WoW today, but there have been people who have been, have been paying for a subscription to WoW for 15 years. Mm -hmm. Right? And it's a steady cash machine. And you can see that with Blizzard, in my opinion, where they turned that thing into a cash cow a long time ago and stopped giving it the real love and attention it needed and just said, look, we got this big paying base. Let's go focus on making money doing other things. And so it was the beginning of that era. Now, this led to something. So there's, this led to an idea that I think really changed. Anybody, anybody imagine where it really changed? Like when the industry became the horrible good thing it is today the horrible Hor good thing horrible good <laughs> thing because it, it, it's both right yep yep now i'll pick one there's some others but steam. i would say steam yeah steam, steam. Yeah. yeah yeah well now, i know i would go a step further and say tf2 tf2 is the moment in what way 
it was it was one of you know how we talk about maybe it wasn't the first but it definitely was kind of maybe uh, i would say it brought it to mainstream audiences pc audiences especially of being a live service game and i would say that that's good but i would say the important thing is the underlying technology to support making money this is a very cynical view right Steam brought into the gaming world a totally new, not itself, it's just an example of, there's other versions of this out there. I'm just going to use this one because it's big. Today, Steam has 6,000 plus games that you can can get today, and I know there have been others. And then when they added Steamworks in around 2008, now you could add all these tools. You could start doing things like adding microtransactions. That was something you could add to your game. Steam runs as a license, right? You don't really own the game. You own a license to play the game, which is a fundamental change in the industry. Which comes with some really good benefits. Let's I'm not, be honest. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's, there's, yeah, there's, yeah. There's, there's good things about it, right? One of which is it, it's very cross-platform. I can play many of my games on many different platforms. I can play the same save across, in some cases, across a Mac or a PC or some other platform where, and that's not true for every game, but there's some games where they do that. Yep. Steam provides enormous amounts of piracy prevention. It's made it possible for developers to sell their product. All those long years of trying to sell commodities kept running into a constant problem. Pirate, 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 right? People talk about piracy, but not to the same level they used to. It used to be a legitimate fear that I, I would hear people say, piracy is going to destroy the industry. That did not happen. And one of the reasons why is that companies found ways to monetize that in some ways are better. And I would say that, and this is kind of where I would lead into the big discussion, it's led into two almost contradictory things. The first is what I would call the the good part of this, the, the thing that I think is great. One, it's excellent for independent developers. You have a way as an independent developer in Steam and other places, app stores, uh, there's multiple other platforms to do it on, where if you're a small-time developer, all you have to do is meet the requirements of that platform, which I'm not saying is easy, but they're they're there. And then you can publish your game. Flappy Bird. And it gives you the ability to do that. <laughs> Flappy Bird. I mean, what other world would Flappy Bird have done what it did? There's, Kate, there's an alternate timeline, guys. There's an alternate meta, <laughs> like, universe out there where we still have Flappy Bird. <laughs> they made Flappy Bird too. I, yeah. Well, like, and other things like uh, Angry Birds. Yeah. And, and These, the funny thing is, yep. I, I played a, a game that predated Angry Birds. Same concept, but it was like a tower it was like a medieval game where it's you fire out a catapult it's like funny hey angry birds is not a new idea but it right did, no it's not but it did hit i think i know what a, game you're talking about although i can't name the game but i i've played it, a game it, like uh, it yeah and so it's it's had a great effect of allowing what i think is one of the best eras of independent games uh, it's just it's amazing to me that i can find games all over the place at any hour of the day for almost any preference and there's somebody I, that can produce something and i can go buy games from my childhood for 10 bucks or yeah, like yeah. games that were released decades ago or that i've yeah. never played or anything like that yeah and and then there's a whole slew of like you said indie games that are 
really niche or weird or off the wall concepts that appeal to certain audiences that you can go find. And those, those games just would have a really hard time. They would succeed far fewer times than they do on a place where steam and the app store exist. And, you know, to me, another one, and I'm going to say it's a net benefit. DLC can be controversial because sometimes it can be misused like any other technology, you know, it, it, the, we, we have the power of fire, right? We can warm our houses or we can burn somebody else's down. It can go either way. But DLCs, I would say that one of the greatest games ever made, Crusader Kings 2, just a gorgeous, beautiful game. It's real thing is it's got like a million, it's got years of continued improvement until they finally just made Crusader Kings 3. But DLC after DLC got added to that game, and each one of those things added something to the point where the final product is considerably better than it started. And it also encourages game developers to do something that's been useful to someone like myself, which is they produce a game, they get all the original buyers, and they add a DLC, they get a new audience. They add another DLC, they get a new audience, and then a couple of years they repackage it at a discount and get even new audience. They're able to keep the games in circulation. Now, this can get ridiculous with the 14,000 versions of a game. What is it? Um, what is that Bethesda game that I cannot, the, the one that came after Morrowind that just not in my head right Oblivion? now. Oblivion? Yeah, it's like, yeah, there's people, have, uh, it, and the one even after that one that's been bought on like Skyrim. Everybody, Skyrim, everybody buys Skyrim, Skyrim yeah. on every new platform that comes out. It's, it's a running joke that you keep buying new versions of Skyrim, right? Oh, yes. But, <laughs> well, no, no, no. The example is uh, uh, Grand Theft Auto, the newest, the latest one, yeah. is that it's like, it's like you bought Grand Theft Auto for the PlayStation 3, then you bought it for the PlayStation 4, and now you have it for the PlayStation 5. <laughs> and, and, you know, I, I fall into that trap on a couple of games too. But it, it is kind of funny, but it, it does allow the developers ways to keep their business running, to monetize their products in ways that aren't horrific. There's some misuses of it, but it really is has added a tremendous variety and possibility to an industry that otherwise I think at times has gotten a little narrow because of the difficulties of making money. It unfortunately has led also to what I would call the time before. Um, I do think that licenses are good and bad. Uh, one of the biggest things is the, and this, this is something that I worry about, which is when somebody else owns your license, they can take it away from you. And the reasons they can do that have in a free market can be pretty touchy, right? And so I'm not a hundred percent fan of that. I, I tend to like to prefer to buy my own DVDs and Blu-rays and burn them. So I don't have to lose access to them because I've had too many times where the streaming service just stopped owning the rights to it. I couldn't watch it anymore. So there's a little negative there, but I'll be completely honest. I think the, the biggest thing it's caused is monetization has gotten easy with this approach to the point where now we're starting to see intentionally addictive behavior. Uh, I don't know if any of you have looked up there. The, what do you mean by that? Seeing, Okay, so there's an excellent uh, YouTube video I recommend called Let's Go Whaling. And, one of, and it talks about seven or eight methods by which to heavily monetize your game. Several of those methods are specifically designed to create what essentially are addictive type of behaviors. Not necessarily like drug addiction, but to trigger behaviors in people that are designed to keep them buying a product. It's, it's the stuff advertising companies understand about human psychology. 
And if you want to look it up, it's something called the hooked model. And it's essentially, you know, to get you hooked. And the big one, of course, is they, in general, they want the whale. They, they want the person who's got a large amount of money and they provide the person with a large, a lot of money, a lot of incentives. So like a simple example is that the first buy on these games is always a really good deal because it's an icebreaker. It causes you to, now you spent money, you're willing to do it a second time, that kind of thing. And you you have games now that are almost entirely funded by a small number of people who are spending sometimes ridiculous amounts of money. I mean, I don't know, I've heard stories, horror stories of people that have spent a million dollars on a game yeah. and got upset and went to the studio and threatened to kill people. Like they just, because, you know, the, the feature they paid for got taken away from them, which is an issue with licensing, right? You, you don't really own the game. You own the stuff in the game. And if the company takes it away from you and you spend a million dollars on it, there, there's going to be some really unhappy people. So that is the negative. And of course, I, I do think that there are far too many games, personal opinion, that are just essentially there to just get you to spend money and don't really provide a whole lot of value. So I think that that's the, that's the negative. But it is interesting because because I don't know if you've really thought about this, and I think this is the point I would make. But almost everything about what's going on in this industry right now is driven by the byproducts of how this persistence model is causing companies to make decisions. It's why Grand Theft Auto Six has not come out. It's why you're seeing AAA shops that are essentially monetizing the products they have and trying to come up with new monetized streams. And you're seeing less, I would argue, less innovation. If you're making money on something, you don't need to innovate as much, right? Well, well, it's not just that you don't need to. It's that it's actually higher risk to innovate because you're starting from, if you start from scratch, the risk is really high. If you start from a game that's already making money and just build a DLC, then you already have an audience. And a paying audience and people have already expressed interest. Yep. Yep. So it's it's actually you know kind of like this the cycle reinforce a cycle of reinforcement where if you have a successful game you're going to be less likely to do something outside of that successful game that might be different it's going to, you're going to do something along the same beaten path um which is like why a lot of the innovations coming out of the indie game and uh, and I think sector. there's a related thing which is if you look at a game like Candy Crush sort of the famous Candy Crush and all of those little match three type games, there's almost no innovation in that space. But the money due to the way that people are encouraged to spend it. So, for example, Candy Crush. I I stopped playing Candy Crush when I realized that I'd reached the point where money winning that level was a matter of luck. And they were essentially just letting me have all kinds of ways to get past that luck. I can't tell you if there was some secret meeting in a back room or not. But from where I was looking at it, it seemed like they were heavily encouraging me to spend money to get past that level. And they had that, of course, asked the, the next question, like I said, backroom don't know, is were they designing that level to be random in order to encourage me to spend money? And a question, if I was a AAA game developer, I, I, would, I wouldn't make PC games. I'd be going making these cheap. Yeah, I could make it with a shop of one third the people and I could make three times as much money. Why would I go make a fancy game? Why would I even consider doing that? Yeah, spend millions of dollars on a really high quality 3D intensive graphics modeling game or go spend 
you know, a third or less or like a tenth of the money to build a game that's going to make you more money. Almost guaranteed. And now more and more, it's it's pretty clear to me that the AAA publishers are under tremendous pressure to put monetization into games where it makes absolutely no sense. The the famous ones, of course, are the loot boxes, right? Just random loot boxes, which have been investigated for the possibility that they're just essentially a form of legal gambling. Now, of course, the laws aren't clear on that, but right. those allegations of that have been made. And I, I think that that's an interesting question. It's like, you know, the, the, the loot box has a table with percentages of chances of getting things. And you've got really, really long progression cycles where the game is clearly designed so that if you don't pay, you don't get lucky, you're going to spend 5, 15, 20, 30 times as long to get wherever you're at. And of course, as, as a game player, that's extremely annoying. I, I just can't stand it. But as a game company, I understand why they do that. And it's all based on this technology that we don't think much about which is that essentially they can they can utilize persistence to store it on a game server and essentially store your progression. We don't think about that, but these games have progression. So I've, I'll give a specific example. I've been, I've been playing an idler for six months. I have no idea what got, I didn't think I was going to be playing it more than two weeks. I was just bored. And mm. it's, it's one of those games where it has some monetization features are not too bad. But every time you, you know, you go to a certain point, you rebirth and you start over again and you're a little more powerful. And they've essentially added three or four years of content. And it's a beautiful design. Like it's, it's really fascinating that they've designed a game that essentially all of my progression stored on a server somewhere, cross systems. And the game for me is a constant, steady increase in power and ability and increase of new content. It's, it's a beautiful design. It's not something we could have done 20 years ago. But they have that today, and I love it. It's, it's probably one of my favorite games. But you know, it, it's that model that's sort of underlying all the potential of the industry. I don't. If, now that I brought it up, did you, so, you ever think about that? Before? So the the one thing that keeps coming to my mind is Minecraft. Um, and the reason I say that is so when I first started playing Minecraft, I downloaded the Java version of Minecraft, and I could run it locally. It installed and ran locally. Um, there came a point where, and I think this was before Microsoft bought it even, um, where I had to be connected to the internet to get it to launch. I had to sign in and prove that I had purchased the game in order to get Minecraft to launch. And it's all running locally. Yep. Um, there's not even as much persistence there other than my account. Yep. It's just you have a license to play the game and this records yep. a license. Yep. And and so if Microsoft now ever decides to shut down those servers, decides, I mean, not that there's any hint that they would do that because it's <laughs> making tons of money. But Wait, so you're saying, Des, are we hearing this correctly that Microsoft is shutting down Minecraft? No. Is this, no, a, wor is this a world's that. first? Hot <laughs> off the press? You heard it here first, guys. No. <laughs> you heard it here first. <laughs> Did but, you, know you know that Minecraft did, is shutting down? <laughs> if they ever did, it would be like I couldn't play Minecraft anymore. Well, here's no, there's there's no reason that. Well, speaking of that, persistence, like one of the things I was thinking about, and I don't know if you're aware of this, Lex, and I think you might be. Question mark. Forgive me if if I if you are, maybe I'm not. But um, you know, 
So I wanted to do some, uh, <laughs> have my air quotes up, research, because I'm going to be talking about it soon. Uh, Warzone 2, right? Uh, do you know what I got when I booted up World Warzone 2? Do you know what the first thing I got? I got a prompt to put in my freaking phone number. Into, and it was not like, it was not like, hey, we want to like this. It was, it was straight up like there's cheaters, there's bad people. We want your phone numbers. Uh, like, I'm like, is this why they built Warzone 2? Is that you could get everybody's phone numbers and like delete this problem? But the biggest issue here is like, okay, cheaters? Sure, I get it. Like, uh, yeah, like fair enough. I applaud you. Like, yeah, good, good on you guys. Like, get get rid of the cheaters. But then it's like, you know, people are talking about that they're getting recorded because like 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 this, the audio is getting recorded and transcriptions and all this jazz. And and yes, there's bad people on the internet for sure. There's bad people on the internet. But like, when does that point? I don't want to be a conspiracy theorist here, but like, you know, when does that point go too far? There could be a place down the road where it's like, yeah, like one game ban, and like you're you're done, like you're not coming back. Period. Like you need you need to get like a different phone number, like, and that's actually a really crazy thing to think about is the fact that this whole phone number system, like the persistence of the phone number system, it's going to have a kickback on the telecoms. Weirdly enough, whereby People are going to be like, oh, yeah, I want a different phone number. I want a different phone number. What, like, that's crazy to think, but it's, there might be a world where we live in that, that, that becomes a reality because of this persistence issue that you speak of. It's, it's one of those things that I don't get up and play games and think about it, but it's sort of underlying so many things that we don't take, we, we kind of take it for granted. But, but I would argue, and this is sort of my final point, that Almost everything going on in this industry today is either a positive byproduct of this or a negative one of this specific thing, right? The, the, the goods of all these independent producers, the filling out all these niches where people can just easily get their product out, people that have a passion project go out and we can play that wonderful game. But then we also get all of the, the negatives and they're all driven essentially by the same, I mean, it's economic forces at the end of the day, but it's a technology that's fundamentally changed the business and it's changed the way product is delivered. It's changed the way that product is received. It changed the way that pretty much everything is done. And interestingly enough, we almost never think about it, which was the, which is the point of this discussion. So with that, I'm going to hand it back to you. Awesome. Well, thank you, Lex. I appreciate it, man. That's dang. I didn't know where... I read your notes and I was like, oh, yep, mm-hmm, that sounds good. Uh, I dare say we need a part two to this discussion because it's, uh, it's a fascinating one for sure, especially the idea that like, you know, we're, we're moving towards this world of more persistence and how can, how can companies monetize that, right? Which I think is, is really, really fascinating.